Bibles and, and open up to the book of Colossians this morning. We're continuing uh, to go verse by verse or section by section uh, through the book of Colossians. Let us uh, begin this morning uh, by reading Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 5. These will be the verses we're, we're looking at, and we start with reading them just as a reminder that uh, we want to preach the Word of God. We want to go right from what the text says. Uh, let's look at verses 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of, of wisdom and knowledge, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, I am yet with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's start uh, this morning with just a prayer of dedication. Lord, we just ask this morning uh, that you would be pleased to send your spirit to, to minister this passage of the word of God to us. Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts and work in our lives and and build us together and and knit us up as the family of God in love and goodness. Uh, Build us in in our faith, Lord, if there are any of us who are are struggling or need to to grow in our confidence and assurance, we pray that that you would do that through your word. Uh, We know that your word is living and active and that you are faithful in using your word in the people of God. Uh, We just ask for your blessing now as we study your word together. In your name we pray. Amen. It's tough sometimes in our lives to to measure the impact that we can have in someone's life. It's tough sometimes even to know. There will be times, I think, where we have impacted people's lives and we don't even know it. Uh, until and we won't know it until we get to heaven. Uh, about two months ago, I went to a funeral of a woman named Dot Klein. Uh, my family has known Dot Klein for literally decades. Uh, Dot Klein passed away in her 90s. Uh, she was about 10 years or so older than my grandmother. And when my grandmother was a young girl, uh, they lived on neighboring farms. Uh, up in the Berks County area, up near Reading. And Dot Klein is the one that invited my grandmother to church. Uh, Over the years, uh, the families continued to to stay in touch. Uh, I remember as a young boy, uh, one time Dot Klein had fallen and she broke her hip. And my dad would take me and and a couple of, uh, my brother and my sister, a couple of us, and we would go regularly to visit Dot Klein. Dot Klein had prayed for my dad for years, and when I went off to Bible college, Dot Klein has prayed for me for years. Uh, When I was younger, I didn't really understand what that meant. It was sort of like, who is this lady that I don't really know that she's praying? Okay, fine, she's praying for me. Uh, As I got older, and particularly as I started having children of my own, and she would occasionally send me cards, and and then about a year or two ago, she was getting rid of some books, and she asked if I wanted them, and 
uh, really good books, actually. I was, I was quite surprised. Sometimes when people want to give you books, they're not always the best. Uh, she gave me some sermons, actually, of, of Charles Spurgeon's that she had read over the years. And it, it began to sink into to my mind just what a, a godly woman she was. She has prayed for me for at least a decade, if not uh, two or three uh, decades. And she often encouraged me from afar. Uh, I think I had seen her last maybe a year ago, and the time before that, maybe uh, two years before that. So we didn't see each other much in the last years. In fact, I never saw her much, and yet she impacted my life in a way that I, I don't even, I won't even know the depths of until I get to heaven. We're in a passage of Scripture where Paul is impacting people's lives And some, most perhaps at this church, he has never met face to face. He is not just writing them a a casual letter, dropping them a note. Hi, how are you doing? I'd like to introduce myself. He describes himself as struggling for these people. And part of that struggle is, I think, the struggle that he had for all his churches, which was being anxious for them to see that they're growing in the Lord. Our main point this morning is long for others to grow in Christ. Even when you're not near them, even when you don't see them regularly, as Dot Klein did not see me regularly, long for others, for people in your circles of influence, in your your family connections, your friendship connections, long to see them grow in Christ. And we're going to talk about in, in what ways we can do that. So first this morning, long for others to grow in Christ in a way that is anxious to see them growing closer to Jesus. So this longing for people to grow in Christ should be a desire to see them grow in Jesus. I'm sure we all have family or friends or people that we know that are spread out uh, throughout the country, perhaps even throughout the world. And we have desires to see them, longings to see them. We want to know that things are going well. But do you have a desire that they would grow in Jesus Christ, grow in their relationship with Jesus. So we note in our passage first that that Paul struggled uh, over other churches, longing for them to grow. Look at verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face. Laodicea would have been the neighboring town. Now, some of the churches that Paul writes to in the New Testament, Paul had been to. Some of the churches Paul was going to, like in the book of Romans, he hopes to get to Rome eventually, and we know from church history that he did. The book of Corinthians was written to the church at Corinth, and Paul had actually planted that church. Same way with the church at Thessalonica, the book of Thessalonians. There are a number of places that Paul has been to that he writes letters to encourage them to see them grow up in the faith, to see them grounded and rooted. The book of Colossians, written to the church at Colossae, a Roman town, a Roman city in modern-day Turkey, was a place that Paul had never been. He did not plant this church He did not know most of the people in this church. And yet he describes this as, I have a struggle for you. It's a a spiritual longing, a desire to see them grow up. Verse uh, 29 of the last chapter, Paul writes using the same language, 
For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Paul writes in, in chapter 4, verse 3, that he is, he is actually in prison. So he can't get to these people, and yet he has a struggle for them. A desire to see them grow in their, their Lord, the Lord. A desire to see them become mature in the faith. Chapter 4, verse 12, we run into the name Epaphras. Epaphras at one time had been the minister at the church in Colossae. And he's now with Paul. And Paul writes in chapter 4, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you might stand mature and fully assured of the will of God. So one of the struggles that Paul and also Epaphras have is this, this deep prayer life for these people. But we sort of, at least I sort of expect that Epaphras would have this. Epaphras had been ministering with them. He knew these people. What is amazing to me is the Apostle Paul has only heard of these people, never seen them face to face, perhaps does not know most of their names. Maybe he knows some or he's heard of reports about them from Epaphras. And yet he says, not just a, hi, how you doing? I hope you're growing. But he says, I struggle for you. I have this longing. I have this desire. His ministry and, and desire was to see the gospel to spread everywhere in the world, so much so that he struggled for people he did not, had not met. Paul says in first, uh, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight when he's talking about the, the persecutions he faced, the, the daily uh, struggles that he had in the life of ministry, he writes, finishing up a long list, he says, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And I think that describes part of the struggle that Paul is talking about here in Colossians. An anxiety for the church, a a healthy concern and, and a good kind of worry that these churches might grow up in the Lord. And he has that for people he has not met. He has that for people that are not in his immediate circle or are not his, his closest friend. It's, it's the kind of struggle that, that stems from a, a deep compassion, a, a close love, a, an abiding concern. You think about a, a parent who sends their, their child off to, to college, perhaps maybe in another state, and how they have this sort of worry, a, a healthy, hopefully anyways, a healthy concern for the child. I hope they're studying hard. I hope they're avoiding the wrong kind of crowds. I, I, I want to make sure they're seeing, uh, making the right friends. I, I hope they've found a church and you perhaps pray for your child. You, you send them notes or you call them or maybe you Skype with them. And, and you just have that, that burden on your heart. Now, hopefully you're not what they call like the helicopter parent where you're, you know, meddling always in their life. But, but hopefully it's that healthy, I have to let my child go out into the world, but I love them. And I'm concerned for them and I want to see them do well. And this is what Paul has for the church. These people are new believers or, or new-ish believers. We don't know how long they've been Christians, but they haven't been Christians for more than at least a few years and Paul is, is concerned. 
He wants to see these people grounded in Christ. He wants to see them persevere in the faith. He wants to know that they're, that they're continuing to love one another. And he says, I struggle for you. I want to see this happen in your midst. He has a deep desire to see spiritual growth. He tells us what this struggle is in verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. Paul wants the believer's heart to be encouraged. We want in our midst that, that our hearts would be encouraged in the Lord. We come into church hopefully every Sunday and sometimes we come feeling run down. Sometimes we go through periods of of discouragement in our lives. Sometimes even our relationship with the Lord can be fraught with difficulties or or struggles or even we face tests where we where we have that temptation towards unbelief or that temptation to doubt is the Lord really here is he really watching over me? And what we want in the believer is for the believer to find in the Lord encouragement. That we might know that these difficulties that we go through are not in vain. That, that perhaps as the, the Colossians struggle to be witnesses or they face temptations or even there's some kind of false belief going around in the town of, of Colossae at the time. Paul wants them to be encouraged in the Lord. Uh, that they would be upbeat in a way that they find their joy and their strength coming from the Lord Jesus Christ, not wandering from the faith. Paul wants the church to be knit together in love. And this is what God wants for us as well. That we might be sewn together, knit together as as one in in a unity of, of mind and heart where we love each other. And we come in together each week with a sense of we are here uh, to delight in the Lord. And we were just saying in Sunday school this morning that the church is more than just a, a social club. That we are here to, to talk about the Lord and, and, and wonderful things that are found in Jesus Christ alone. But hopefully that knits us together like a family in love. Paul says in the book of Ephesians that, that one of the goals for, for the ministry of the church is that it goes on, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And last week we talked about maturity being that aspect where we reflect the image of Jesus, just like a, a polished coin might reflect the image of the face that is imprinted on there. Paul wants that for us, and he goes on in Ephesians, and he says that we should be, quote, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, for from whom the whole body, joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, where the parts are working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Think of how your physical body is, is knit together. 
you have muscle tissues and nerves and and connections to the muscle tissues and bones and all of it is is knit together and when you when you take a fall uh, my daughters are, are learning to ride bikes and they are riding bikes out here on the the church parking lot uh, and the other week, one of them fell off the bike. And two weeks ago before that, one of them got too much speed on their little scooter going down the just the slight incline in the parking lot, and they took a spill. And it, and it left uh, scars and brush burns on their legs. When I was a kid, we called those battle wounds. Uh, you know, they, they were points of pride that you fell on your bike. Uh, and yet your body has this amazing capacity to knit itself together. You, you look at that, that wound a week later and you begin to see new tissue healing. And, and perhaps scar tissue begins to form. And, and sometimes after a while that scar tissue goes away. But the body knits itself back together. And if you look at that in the process, you can actually see new skin repairing itself. When you, when you break a bone, your body knits itself back together and it becomes stronger now in that spot than it was before it had broken. God has made the church to be the same way. It is a body and we are to be knit together. When there are wounds in the body, when there are people hurting, we are to reach out and love and be be knit together so that person is encouraged, so that person draws strength from, from the example and the encouragement of other believers so that they know they are not going through the Christian life alone. But this happens through love. Love is the bond that binds us together. And, and it should not be just something that we say. Oh, I love you. Oh, I care about you. Rather, it should be something that we practice towards one another. Something that we demonstrate. That are we compassionate when people are hurting? Do we show empathy and sympathy? Do we offer to help when there are needs? We are to be knit together in love. Paul has a concern for the church, for all his churches really, but particularly the church at Colossae here. Not only that they get all of their doctrine right, not only that they stand firm on the Lord and teach things that are true and anchor themselves deep in the faith, but out of that, standing on the truth, that they go out and they love one another that they practice these things uh, that they actually believe. The third thing that he's longing for and struggling for here in, in spiritual growth is that they reach, quote, all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. You see, the more I understand the Word of God, the more I begin to see who God really is. And the more I know God, the more confidence and assurance it brings to me. So you may ask yourself this, how do I know something is true? How do I know that God loves me? How do I know that there really is heaven? How do I know that I'm a genuine believer? Have you ever been at those points in your life? Have you ever asked some of those questions? I've been there. And the Lord has this amazing thing that He does in spiritual growth in our lives that as we study the Word of God, as we continue to gather with believers and they encourage us, we begin to grow in our understanding and an assurance. 
we begin to know these things and know that the truth comes from God. Spiritual maturity leads to a confidence in who God is. It leads to a real knowledge of God, which in turn is also knowing things about God. One of the things that's disturbing to me, uh, two things, one is where people today look for assurance. People look for assurance in all kinds of things. Let me just give you one example. There is a really popular book out. Actually, there's several books out there right now that are really popular that recount stories of people supposedly returning from heaven, right? One of them, I think, is called Heaven is for Real. And people have this idea that, that because someone supposedly died and they can tell you that they went to heaven and now they've come back and they can uh, tell you this, these stories about what they saw, suddenly we have this idea that it is more reliable than anything that we find in Scripture. I tell you, we have Jesus Christ who died and rose again from the dead. We don't need more assurance than that. The sad thing is, in a couple of these stories, now the people have come out and confessed they were lying or making the things up uh, the whole time. One was a story that happened to a young boy when he was a child, and as he got older, he finally confessed, I made these things up because I wanted to tell my parents and impress people. And as he got more intention, the story began to abound, and finally they wrote a book about it, and, and he finally just came out and said these things weren't really true. Those kinds of things don't give us assurance the way the Word of God does. The second thing that I would say that concerns me about what goes on in our world today is is we live in a culture that thinks spiritual maturity leads to less assurance. There are people out there that claim to be Christians and they will say to you, the Bible is very complex. There's a lot of mystery. They would even say, well, see, Paul used the word mystery. And so if you're too dogmatic, if you're too confident in what the Word of God says, you're just not really mature. You need to be more open. You need to understand there are a lot of different options out there. And so they they will tell you, maturity means being less certain of yourself. We don't ever want to draw our certainty from ourselves, right? But being anchored in the faith leads to a growing confidence in the Word of God. The certainty that you have rests not in yourself, but in the Word of God. And in the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit to cement the Word of God into your heart. To transform you to be more like Jesus Christ. God wants you to grow in the knowledge of his word, and that knowledge should lead to a confidence in who he is. When you're struggling with the faith or when you're asking those hard questions, God wants you in your wrestling to turn to him, to read his word, to spend time in prayer, to to ask him to cement these things into your heart. The biblical model of spiritual growth is that we become assured that all that God has said is true. One of the dangers is that we take assurance in ourselves. And I have seen families and individuals that grow up in the life of the church and they are self-assured. And as they get older, they wander from the faith 
because they were trying to hold on to God with all of their strength and they were forceful in their personality and they assumed that if they were just more dogmatic about something and more pound the pulpit in assurance, they would be right. God doesn't want us to have self-assurance or self-confidence where we rely on our abilities to know these things. He wants us to rely on Him. To take, as this Scripture says, that, that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge do not come from me and my ability to understand them and my ability to grasp them, but I find them in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4.14, one of the goals of maturity is, quote, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Have you ever been on a windy lake or out on the ocean in a very small boat and been tossed to and fro? where you start to get seasick. Not very fun. And growing in Christian maturity moves us from being this Christian who is tossed around by everything, that, that anytime everyone, anyone tells you anything, you, you struggle with it and you wonder, is this true or is this wrong? Moving to a place where you are confident, not in yourself, and not even in your own smarts or intelligence, but you're confident in what the Word of God actually says. That you grow, quote, in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. God revealing Himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Are you anxious and longing to see this kind of growth in the life of our church? Are you desirous of seeing this kind of growth in, in people that you know? Some of you I know have, have family members or friends that you don't get to see very often. Do you, even in your absence, long for them to grow in these ways? Do you pray for them? Do you encourage them? I would encourage you not to be anxious for other things in the life of the church. But it is appropriate, I think, as Paul says, to struggle and be desirous of seeing these right kind of things growing in the life of the church. We can be anxious for all kinds of things in the life of the church. We can be anxious uh, for numbers. We can be anxious that the church be the most popular one around. We can be anxious whether or not we'll make budget every year or every month. We can be anxious for a whole number of things that we measure as success in the life of the church. I would tell you that these are the things that Paul measures spiritual maturity by. That the Word of God gives us the guide of things that we should look for. Long for these things in the life of the church. Can you say, like Paul would say, this is what I'm going to be most compassionate or most passionate about in the life of the church? Do people come in and are they encouraged? Am I an encourager in the life of the church or in the life of my extended family or extended church family or people that I know? Are people growing in love? Am I loving others in this church body? Am I desirous of not just 
maintaining the level of love that I have for them, but actually having my heart knit together with them more and more. Is there a growing love? Is there a growing confidence in the Lord? The Lord wants us to be confident in Him. Second, this morning, long for others to grow in Christ by being concerned that we not be deluded by convincing lies. It is so easy to hear things and hear people talk and other things and ideas that are out there and be, be tempted and, and, and pulled astray and, and just subtly enticed into things that are not true. We want to be a people grounded in the truth because the truth is what matters And so Paul is anxious for this church and and struggling and and desirous of seeing them not being led astray. And one of the reasons is because all wisdom and knowledge is found in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What is Paul saying and and what is Paul not saying? Uh, First, Paul is not saying as an example, that a doctor shouldn't study medicine. Paul is not saying that a lawyer shouldn't study uh, the law. Paul doesn't mean, when he he says all the wisdom and treasures of knowledge are, are hidden in Christ, Paul is not saying don't study anything else. He's not saying you can't become a scientist and study God's creation or a doctor and study the human body that God so wondrously made. But he is talking about what we might call your worldview. How do you look at all the things that God has given us in his creation? Do you see these things as ultimately being summed up or or pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ? For example, if you become a scientist, you are dealing with God's creation. And you can study all the intricacies of quantum physics or study the stars or study biology. But do you see all of these things as something under the reign and rule of Jesus? That is, you study the stars. Jesus is the one whose throne is far above all these things. You might get all the, the things right on the, the whatever star-taking exam astronomers have to take. You might know all the names, all the wavelengths of the light frequencies that come from the stars. And I don't even know what you have to study. You might get all of that right. But you are missing the biggest piece of the puzzle if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and know that he has made all of these things. And, and your studies will come to a point where, where you are just limited because you don't know the Lord of all these things. Same is true of a medical doctor. To study all the intricacies of the human body, you need to, at the end of the day, turn and worship God because we are made in His image. So that all of the the treasures of wisdom and knowledge ultimately find their source in Jesus Christ and in some way return that we should worship Jesus Christ. If you're a lawyer and, and you study the law, it, it does you really no good to just, and, and Helen can tell us what this is like, I'm sure, it does you no good to just debate finer points of the law if you don't have a sense 
of a God who is righteous and has pointed Jesus Christ as judge over all things. I didn't ask Helen, but I'm sure there are lawyers in her firm who are not believers. And I'm sure they are very good lawyers. But because they don't know Jesus, and they don't find at the end of the day all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ, their, their lawyering is just an... It, there, there's no end to it. it. It's just a debating of the law. There is no larger purpose. Or maybe if there's a larger purpose in their minds, it is only for this life. When all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge come from the Lord Jesus Christ, when we understand that, it shapes how we do everything, how we look at everything. It it helps us ground everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not going to find other sources of truth, of knowledge, of wisdom that ultimately do not come from Christ and do not glorify Christ. There are not competing truths out there. There, are tr- there is truth which ultimately comes from Jesus and there are lies. And when we encounter things, we measure whether they not they have the truth in them by going back to the one who is truth. We might find the psychologist who discovers a lot of true things about human beings, but misses out on human nature being made in the image of God because he doesn't know Jesus. We might find the philosopher who asks a whole lot of questions about the world and tries to answer it. But if he doesn't know Jesus, all his answers are tainted at best. At worst, they're dead wrong. Asking and answering the questions from sources of truth other than the Word of God and other than Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's worried about the church. And we should be concerned in our day and age that we don't get deluded Look at verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. There's an old saying uh, that I've used from time to time. Every heretic has his verse. There are lots of people out there that can quote a Bible verse and make a convincing argument about something that is not true. You can go to, to colleges and universities and all sorts of places and find people that can make convincing, philosophical, spiritual arguments about what life is or what life should be. And Paul's concerned that we don't get deluded by those things. Because all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, they they come from Jesus. And so he wants us to be grounded in Jesus, so that, that when these other argument comes... We, we so know where the treasure is that, that these things are like little raindrops bouncing off the window. You know, they have no impact on us. They, they make no difference, no persuasive power because I know where the treasure is found. 
the Colossians were facing some kind of false teaching. And we get some ideas of what it might be like. Look down with me in, in chapter 2, verse 16, or excuse me, start in verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty conceit, according to human tradition. Verse 16, he says, no, Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink with regard to festivals or new moon or a Sabbath. There was some kind of perhaps Jewish type mysticism. He says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you by insisting on asceticism or the worship of angels. Verse 21, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, referring to things that perish as they are used. Yet according to human precepts and teaching, these indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in a stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You need Jesus Christ, Paul is saying. And, and these other people were teaching other things and they were coming in with philosophies and, and man-made religion. And some of these things were, were rules, you know. Don't taste this. Perhaps referring to Jewish food laws, you know. Don't go out and enjoy a good lobster. Because Leviticus says no. We know those things are now fulfilled in Christ. And so, amen, we can have lobster if you like that sort of thing. But they were using man-made rules to say this is what holiness looks like. And they were not finding it in Christ. Some kind of other false belief, some kind of worship of angels was creeping in. We see the worship of angels today creeping into our own culture. Have you ever encountered a Jehovah Witness? They have their verse or two that they mistranslate. They have their convincing arguments. But they will take you away from the treasure that is Jesus Christ. That Jesus is God the Son, equal in power and glory. As we talked about in chapter 1 of our passage, that He is the image of the invisible God. That all things live and move and have their being in Jesus. Because those are things that you can only say about God. That the creation was made by Him and made for Him. And the Jehovah's Witness says Jesus is a nice angel and we should honor Him and and make Him really high in our priorities. Almost worshiping Him. But He's not God, they say. These things can be very persuasive if they catch us in a moment of spiritual weakness. Let me tell you just a brief little true story that, that happened to me. It wasn't long. It wasn't very traumatic. It was only over a period of a couple days. I was teaching youth group and I was reading about other cults we were and other religions because we were actually teaching uh, you know we were trying to train our kids by by knowing the word of God and, and knowing some of the false ideas that are out there and so I was reading some of these things I, we did one on Jehovah's Witnesses and one on Mormons and we did one on Buddhism and and for a day or two I was finding there are, now, hear me really clearly. I wasn't, you know, like going to become a Buddhist or something like that. But for about a day or two, reading some of these things, I, I was having trouble with what they were saying because I found them to be persuasive. The, the idea of, of denying the self, 
we would say there are aspects of that put in a different context that we find in Christianity. And so, so these arguments started to, to prick, and, and they, this is how people often persuade you into lies. They, they sprinkle in an element that either sounds like the truth or, or kind of like a, a clock without a battery is right twice a day. They, they hit on one thing that might be close to right, and they pull you into that. And I was reading some of these things, and Buddhism teaches uh, that there is no self, and suffering uh, comes from this idea that, that uh, you think the self is real, and you think this world around you is real, and so you need to kind of transcend that and move beyond yourself. And, and, and I'm thinking to myself, how do I teach the kids that this is wrong? I was, in a sense, having... I, I knew it was wrong, right? But I was trying to say, how do you show that these arguments are false and persuasive and 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 because they're false therefore not persuasive even though they are somewhat persuasive all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in christ and if it's not christ it's not going to be true and if it's not true when you look at something, it's going to have something inside of it that is clearly false or clearly inconsistent. Lies break down at some point. Did you ever get caught in a lie as a children be, child because you couldn't tell enough lies? This is what happens when you have false beliefs. With Buddhism... I was reading one of these monks because I was trying to read what what the actual Buddhist says. And he said, in effect, as good Buddhists, we love other people. We want to be compassionate. And that's and, and I no credit in myself for this because I was asking God, "Okay, God, I know this is wrong. So show me. That's where it hit me. The whole point of Buddhism is to deny the self. And the reason people struggle is because they think the self is real. And then the Buddhists said, we need to go out and love people. Stop me if I'm wrong, but aren't people individual selves? And if the biggest problem that you have is that you think you're real and you think you're a self, why in the world would I want to show you love Because then I'm validating that you're a real self, a real individual. You see how it it bumps up against what is blatantly obvious, what is blatantly true? Human beings are made in the image of God. They have value. So even the unbeliever says, well, yes, we should love people. At the very time when he was saying, or they were saying, these people aren't really real. We want to go to nirvana and transcend the individual self. We become one with everything. God has a great love for people because he's made them in his image. And Jesus Christ died for individual people because they are real people. You see, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we grasp that, when we think that way, it it is like taking an inoculation shot. You know those things they give you so that you don't get a virus, so that you don't catch a cold? You know those things that don't sometimes work? But when you inoculate yourself with Jesus Christ, He protects you. 
He guards your heart. We ought to be very concerned about the next generation of Christians. Are they getting inoculated in Jesus Christ? Are they grounding themselves in the Word of God? And let me ask you, uh, because most of us here are probably beyond the age of youth. Uh, I won't ask you if you are or not. I'll leave that between you and the Lord, right? I'm joking. But we need to pray for the next generation. We need to have this, this holy anxiousness. I don't mean fret. I don't mean worry. I don't mean drive yourself sick with anxiety. But this godly struggle. Are my kids hearing the Word of God? Are my nieces and nephews, am I praying for them? My grandchildren. Maybe you can be a dot Klein in someone's life where you pray for them and you send them a note of encouragement. And maybe between now and the day you die, you never see them again. But in that time, you impact their life. Because even though you aren't present, you are struggling for them in the faith. That desire to see good things happen in them. Maybe it is someone you know. Maybe it is someone that you see face to face. Maybe it is someone in the church where you can be the encourager. Where you can be the one that, that reaches out to them in a unique way. And, and, and maybe they are the most um, unlovable person. And you persevere with them. And God uses you to knit them deeper into the body of Christ. Because God loves that person. And He uses you to struggle with them and for them. I would encourage you to have the sort of holy, godly, gospel-centered anxiousness for the people of God. There is a sense that we don't need to worry about the next generation. Because God, through the faithfulness in His Word, will always do what He has promised to do. And that is, Jesus says, I will build my church. And He will ground people in Jesus Christ and raise up Sunday school teachers, parents, pastors, uh, elders in the life of the church. He will raise up children's church workers. Did I say Sunday school teachers already? He will bring in the next generation as He sees fit. But He will do it by grounding them so that they know all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are Jesus Christ. If there is one thing that we want to do as a church, that's find Jesus to be our treasure. We're going to have a fun little family day. But that pales in comparison to how Jesus is our treasure. We're going to have a VBS and we're going to teach Bible stories and we're going to do fun games. Hopefully they're fun. We're going to have cool little crafts. The ones that you take home and you, you don't know what to do with them anymore because they sit on your child's shelf for the rest of the summer. But they're fun. But none of that means anything unless the real treasure the real thing that we're passing on and grounding us in 
is Jesus Christ. That's where the struggle should be. That's where our desires and our delight should be. Let's close this morning in in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just ask this morning that you would speak to us from your word. Uh, We do just want to have a passion for young people, for children, for the next generation, young or old people that need to hear the gospel, people that need to be grounded in Jesus Christ. It's not just young people, Lord, that you want to see get saved. Although it is that, raising up a new generation, it's people of every tongue, tribe, nation, of every uh, age group, senior saint or young infant. Lord, you want all of us to find the treasures and the riches that come in Christ Jesus. We ask, Lord, that we would be a body, a people of God who ground ourselves in that. Encourage us this morning. Lord, we might be small in numbers as we gather, but you are mighty. And you are active in your world, both here, around the county, around the country, and around the world, in grounding people in the Lord Jesus Christ. In your precious name we pray. Amen.